Just how fast is Xfinity Internet? Well, it's beyond gig speed fast. So you feel like you're in the game. It can also connect hundreds of devices at once, which is powerful enough to power hundreds of views. He's, He's not, not kidding. kidding. No, I'm actually not. Unbeatable internet only from Xfinity. Made to do anything, so you can do anything. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Requires compatible Xfinity gateway. Limited quantities available. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Coast to coast, border to border, and around the world. It's time for The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio. Now, here's your host, Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this edition of The Bill Alexander Show with yours truly, William Eric Alexander. Glad you could join us today. It's a beautiful day wherever you may be. And glad you could take part of the program. Well, today I have someone who can pretty much do anything, I think, in the entertainment world, because if she can't, she'll probably figure out how. Right now, on the other side of the computer screen, I have Tracy Newman. Tracy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. It is so great to have you on the program today. And I am, I think I am right. You've pretty much done everything in entertainment from singing hosting your own children's program, having your own folk band, writing TV. Uh, what else am I missing that you have done? The oh, slide of hand. That's right, with the cards. I forgot. Um, now, did you bring this, the deck of cards just so you could show me, or is that just no, no, happened to be there? Always here. The, you know, I, I, it's been years since I did it. But I try to practice one thing so that I know how to do. I can still do a card fan. I'm going to do it for you right now. Okay. I can't guarantee how this will look. But anyway. That's impressive. Every time I do it, it falls apart. Yeah. Well, you know, it takes, it takes, I can't even tell you what it takes. I mean, you saw that <laughs> Johnny Carson thing. When, I don't know if you saw me sitting on the panel with him and talking to him. Yes, I did. Because he does it too, so he knows how much it takes. So, and and I'm I'm going way off the way I wanted to do this today, but <laughs> since you brought the cards up, and that's fine. Um, so you did the Tonight Show. How did he find out about you? How did Johnny find out uh, about you? It's a wonderful. It's it's like um, a wonderful story in the thing that that back in this is 1974. Show business was simpler and things could happen like this. And I, I guess things still happen like this, but this was really uh, amazing to me. Okay. I was doing a Bob Hope special at NBC and I was uh, in a rehearsal and suddenly a man walks in with, with a makeup bib on and it's Johnny Carson comes over to me and he said, I heard there was a woman doing card magic or card manipulations or whatever he called them uh, over on this stage. And I just wanted to see it because <laughs> he loves magic and he loves right, of course. And he, does, he does the same stuff I do. And so <clears throat> uh, that's how I met him. And so then uh, a couple, I wrote, I went home and wrote a sketch for me and uh, the magician Ricky Jay to do on the Carson show. And when I went to shoot the Bob Hope special, I saw Johnny Carson. I had the sketch with me in a, you know, envelope, and I saw Johnny Carson on a cart, you know, like a golf cart. Right. They were coming toward me. <laughs> they weren't. They didn't mean to be coming toward me. They just happened to be driving in my direction, and I jumped in front of it. But you know, it was going like two miles an hour. Right. And it, it didn't hit me. They stopped, and I handed him the the uh, sketch and I said, it's me, Tracy Newman with the cards, remember? And I yeah. had it like this and he took it, took the sketch. Two weeks later, I get a call 
from the head writer of The Tonight Show, and uh, whose name was Hank Bradford at the time. And he said, we've rewritten the sketch for you and Johnny to do together. Oh, okay. That's how it happened. Yeah, so, you could never do that now. So, okay, that's interesting, because I thought, and it was written so well, it looked like it was literally spontaneous. So... Did you write dialogue or did you just write the scenario of what was going to happen? Well, I, I had written a thing for me and Ricky Jay to do where uh, essentially the same thing. I come out of the audience. He asks for a, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't, you know, just a shill. It was right. like, I'm going to get a shill. And, uh, <clears throat> but the, they changed it to be that I, you know, that Ed McMahon says to him, oh, you know, Johnny's doing some stuff with cards and Ed McMahon says, Oh, anybody could do that. I could pick somebody from out of the audience could do that better than you. And then he just chooses me and I come up. And of course, I, I know what to do with cards. And so I do my fancy schmancy stuff. And, uh, and then he asked me to be on the panel, which was, I think, a shock to the people backstage, frankly, because, you know, when you're not a celebrity... That's that's a, All right. that's a big thing. But I, I know he does ask people, sort of regular people, to be on the panel with him on occasion. But usually that's planned. But it wasn't planned for me. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> so now I can do that Kevin Bacon thing. So now I, I've been I'm one step away from Carson now since yeah. I'm talking to you and Ed McMahon. So I'm really happy today. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm one step away. And I'm also one step away from your famous sister, Lorraine Newman, who was one of the original uh, Not Ready for Primetime players on Saturday Night Live. That's right. She was uh, discovered in the Groundlings. You and know, you were yeah. a part of that also, right? Yes. I, I, uh, I have to say that I'm the one that brought her to the class that became the Groundlings. <laughs> you know, it's all... It's all, all intertwined. Yeah. You know, she has a great book out. I don't know if you've uh, noticed it. It's uh, it's only on audibles. Okay. Because that's the deal she made the, that if you somehow, if you do a thing on audibles and that's the deal you make, you can't have it in print for a number of years. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. I think they pay you a lot though. Uh, and it's called, may you live in interesting times. And so she talks a lot about me in there at the beginning. So, you know, if you're, if it's me you're interested in, then get the book for that. If it's Lorraine you're interested in, then get the book for Um so you were you were in the growlings um for how many years? Well, we started it. Okay. I mean, it's not just Lorraine and me, but you know, there was a class, Gary Austin's class. Mm -hmm. And uh then we decided we were decided to do a show of the class, and then that turned into people wanting to join. We thought, well, let's make a group. And then eventually we named ourselves the Groundlings and uh, we built a theater and that was the beginning. I was there for 15 years because I, I was teaching and directing because we were all doing everything back then. We, and I, you know, I had no, no uh, training to teach improv, but uh, I had watched a lot of it <laughs> in New York in the, in the mid sixties. And, you know, I, I just developed an understanding of it, and I was—I I did it back then. But I, somebody had to teach. Put it that way. And well, so that's I, really I, interesting I to me because because most of the time, I mean, the best way to learn something, I guess, is by watching. But usually, we hear these people that have these these big educational backgrounds and everything else. But you're one of these guys that, or ladies that saw it and did it. There was no step in between, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and then taught it. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I frankly would rather teach it than do it because it's the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. But before you did that, you also had TV experience yeah, I did. on um, WNET and a TV program that you hosted called What's New in 1965. Yeah, I did six. This is also a thing about show business that's interesting to me or how, how naive we are when we start out. Uh, I was so young when I did that. I did six episodes, it was very successful, and it never occurred to me to contact WNET, because uh, I didn't personally deal with them, somebody else did, right? Uh, and say, Do, would you like more of these shows? I didn't even think about it. That's it really interesting. That's one reason. What? And that's really interesting, because at that time, 
here where I'm at in Pittsburgh, we had some guy by the name of Fred Rogers who started a program at the same time that lasted until 2003. And yet you could, and just watching your program, there is a resemblance to the way he did things because you were very soft-spoken. You used music as a teaching tool and it was, it was, it's very similar, but yet you didn't think about extending the run longer than it was. You know, I was in New York. I was uh, doing um, singing at the bitter end and singing. I was singing in all the clubs and at the improv in New York and hanging out with comics and stuff. And my life was just full already with that stuff. And doing those shows was one of the hardest things I've ever done in show business because we did it at Brooklyn College. Okay. And so it was a training tool for the students, the woman directing it had experience but she was teaching the class also and she didn't want them to be editing it so she made me do the entire half hour show from beginning to end without stopping with no mistakes and they did all the all the cuts the the uh uh you know the uh camera angles and stuff i had to memorize where i was going i mean i i learned everything about show business just doing those six shows. So was it a one camera shoot or was it multi-camera? It was a couple of cameras and okay. I had to learn my spots. And I, and if I made a mistake 25 minutes into that show, I started over. I oh, wow. You did. Yeah. Wow. I mean that, and there was no editing then. So it was basically well, you. There was at, at that time, but not, not, they did. She didn't want the students editing this thing for some reason. And they won all kinds of technical awards. So, Uh you know, uh, she knew what she was doing. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I learned that the show must go on. I mean, that's like one of your main things you learn, you know, early in show business. Well, I really learned it from that show. Right. So did you want to do TV at that time or did it just happen? It just happened. And did they find you in one of the clubs you were performing at? Or? Yeah, so the director saw me somewhere. I don't even remember where she saw me. Oh, that's really interesting. So then you basically, you did do TV. You you wrote for TV, correct? Yeah, but well, that was a result of the groundlings, really. Uh, okay. So, you know, I, I, I my advice to anybody starting out in comedy uh, if they're young is to go to the groundlings in California, just come out here and be, and just join the groundlings because, you know, the, be in the school because it's who, you know, okay. I know people tell you that all the time, that it's who, you know, if you've got the goods, if you're funny, if you're talented and you're in the right place at the right time and you know, somebody, all those things, you know, that's, oh, that, that's come kind on. of things that have to be there for you to get a job sometimes. You, you don't always need all those things. But, you know, my, I had a writing partner and we knew the people running Cheers. They were, oh. they, were they had been in the Groundlings. Okay. So uh, they they called us up uh, and said, do you, do you guys, you know, asked if we were going to write, if we were still writing because we had started writing uh, just spec scripts you know right and we sent them a script they they didn't hire us and then a year later they called again all up to them though i mean we didn't we were pursuing jobs but not at cheers right so how because i'm looking i'm looking at your uh your bio here you were you were a writer cheers 91 92 yeah and that was the whole season that wasn't just it was just the 10th season okay that's that series went on for 11 seasons, but we didn't stay for that. I think 11, we didn't stay at cheers because we went with the creator, you know, the people running the show, they moved on. They took us with them to a Bob Newhart, um, another Bob Newhart show that did, that didn't make it, but well, that we loved working on. Can I tell you something that show should have made it because it was, I mean, and I, I still remember it because he was a, a comic book author, correct? Yeah. Yeah, it was wow. Bob. My my memory is going back really far here. So, and it was it was very well done because mm-hmm. it was Bob Newhart, and I think it was better than the Newhart program that was on prior to that because it mainly just focused around him, like the original program did. Yeah, well, you know that's nice that that you say that. I mean, all of his shows that you know everything he did was great, 
but that show, I guess, you know, it was just sort of the end of something at that time. I don't know why. I don't know why it didn't work. You know, it had an amazing cast. Betty White was yeah. on it. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, uh, Cynthia Stevenson and uh, Lisa Kudrow was on that. And, uh, you know, I can't think of everybody. But I did not realize that Lisa Kudrow was on that. Yeah, she played, uh, I can't think of the character's name, Andrew Bilgore, the actor, had a girlfriend, and it was Lisa Kudrow. I'll be done. I didn't realize that. Too. Yeah, I didn't realize that. And then you you did uh, the nanny. Um, Ellen must have had must have been an interesting program to work on it was, because of the topics that she was trying to tackle, and then coming out in the last season. Yeah, um, Ellen was an interesting adventure for us. Uh, we started to the like we were hired after this maybe the sixth episode of the first season. Remember okay. that show was originally called these these friends of mine or something right. like that. And then I think friends came along, and so. She, they changed it to Ellen, right? And I'm not sure that's why, but but anyway, it changed to Ellen. And we were we came on staff, and uh, we were there for four seasons. And we wrote the the coming out episode, my partner and I, and uh, but we didn't stay for the final season. Oh, okay. Because we felt well. First of all, she she used to clean clean house. We somehow made it for four seasons, but we didn't make it through that last. Fire. So, so she <laughs> wasn't really, and that's really interesting. She wasn't really a household name like she is now, yet she still felt the need that she could just let everybody go and then try to rebuild before the next season. Well, it's not a rebuilding. It's not everybody. Also, there was okay. uh, one guy that stayed the whole time, and you know, there were there were uh, the, the executive producers seemed to change every year, um, and. Uh, she would always hire new people, but not all of them. And but the last season, when she was going to do an episode where she'd already come out, my feeling was that it was like, "What do you do now? What do you do? You you ever dating?" Right. You know that's what the show is going to be, um, and 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 so that's going to be like now we're going to be able to get a hotel room together, and now we can walk around holding hands and you know, in public. And I, I don't know, it just seemed a hard sell. Okay. To me. But, but, you know, she fired us, so, you know, along with everybody else. So, <laughs> so we went on to, I think we did the Drew Carey show after that. Um, it says Hill, here you did a program called Hiller and Diller. Hiller and Diller. Was that right away? Yeah, oh, that would have been 98. Yeah. One of my favorite shows. It was uh, Richard Lewis, Kevin Nealon, Eugene Levy, and uh, a couple of other really, really good people. I mean, everybody on there was good. And it was about uh, TV comedy writers. So my partner and I really loved doing that. We didn't create it, but we ran it. So okay. it was like, yeah, we learned how to run a show finally, but without the pressure of everything, you know, falling on us in terms of uh, the blame. <laughs> if it failed, which it, which it did in terms of, you know, it didn't stay on the air, but it was right. created by, uh, and imagined by um, uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel. That was their names. And if you look them up, they have quite a career. Okay. And it was sort of like their their story a little bit. And then you did Drew Carey, but the one that you're really known for is the last one which is according to Jim, which you are the co-creator of the program. Yeah, we created that one. You know, when you, we were in development with Disney and ABC for quite a number of years there. Um, and when you are in development, you're creating pilots all the time or writing them. Sometimes right. they're, they ask you for them and sometimes you, you come up with your own thing and you keep presenting stuff. So that was the eighth pilot we presented. And and, and that one. Ever. Now I'm going to ask you a question because I and and this may be just me and my memory may be playing tricks because again I'm in my mid fifties and and things don't add up the way they're supposed to. Was the program originally called Life According to Jim? No. Okay. Then you know, why do I why do I remember that? <laughs> you're thinking of uh, 
the world according to Gart, maybe? I don't know, because I could have swore that's what it was, but it, I guess it's not. So anyway, so no, according, according to, to Jim was 2001, 2000 to 2009, eight seasons. Mm -hmm. And you had the honor of working with Jim Belushi, and which must. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. Again, who she came off of a program before that called Step by Step, if I remember correctly, um, where they were day they were daycare owners and she was one of the workers at the daycare. Wow. I thought she came <laughs> off of like, wasn't she, wasn't 90210 and then. Um, oh, it actually, it would have been in between. You're right. It would have been 90210, but her first one was the other one that I met. Wasn't she so, on Allie McBeal too? She may have been. Yeah. I only remember off one and that was the first one because she was really attractive and I oh, was, okay. <laughs> I was, I was in my late teens, early twenties then. So I remember it very well. Um, but you, 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 you had a cast that, that was amazing. It was, um, I mean, you couldn't ask for, for better people. And then even people that make guest appearances on the program. I mean, Chris Elliott, um, you had, um, the two individuals that I cannot remember their names right now that played the Devlins, which oh, were yeah, the Tim most Bagley and Tim Bagley and Cynthia Stevenson, Cynthia Stevenson, who also worked with us on uh, Bob. Was that Bob's daughter? Yeah. Okay. Then I, okay. And Tim so, Bagley was in the Groundlings. I, in fact, I was his teacher. I say I was his teacher, but you know, at the Groundlings being somebody's teacher means you run the, you know, you run mm -hmm. the exercises and stuff. Please. I did not teach Tim Bagley. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> He's brilliant. So that's interesting because you worked with, with Jim and your sister worked with John. Mm-hmm. Could you compare the two to each other? Because well, I I never worked with John, uh, right. you know, but I watched. I certainly watched him and was a big fan. It's a different talent, I think. You know, I, I know there was a Jim Belushi always got a lot of flack. People, you would never have been noticed if it wasn't your for your brother, and that could be true. I have no idea. Right. You know that working with him as an actor, he's really, really a good actor. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that you could say that exactly about John Belushi. He was a, more of a, a comedy, you know, comedian, you know, I'd say like an actor, comedy guy who I don't, I don't know how he would have done if he had lived, if he had, if he would have continued acting per se, mm -hmm. whereas Belushi did 72 films before he did According to right. Jim. Right. You know, and he was terrific. And, and you also had uh, uh, Kimberly Williams so Paisley <laughs> yes. and Larry and, and Larry Joe Campbell, which oh, I don't think you could have found anybody else to play that part because he played a great brother-in-law. I mean, there's know, just and, no two. And, and you can imagine what we went through. Uh, my partner was the one who knew Larry Joe Campbell's work. I didn't know him. Okay. Because the network kept wanting us to have, you got to have a good looking guy with with Belushi who's thinner and you know and Johnson and my partner said no we're going to get a guy who's fatter than Belushi and those two together are going to be really funny and they were he was right and he had to we had to fight the network about that they really they wanted so uh, was the program based on anybody you knew it was my partner's uh well you know it was Belushi's life too a little bit but it was okay. my partner's whose name was John Stark uh had two little girls and uh, a beautiful wife, you mm -hmm. know. And the way we sold that show was sort of like, um, talk about low concept. Well, we knew they needed a family show. Okay. ABC. So uh, we sold it as, this is a, uh, a family with, uh, a married couple with children who are trying to keep their romance alive today. In okay. these times. Right. Yeah, in Chicago. In these times. Right. And it was the sort of the idea that they were going to have this romantic main couple with little children, which is impossible, as you know. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and keeping their romance alive the way the world is now, which was 2001. And one, yeah. Yeah. And I remember we were shooting when 9-11 when happened. I, what I don't remember is which episode, but it was right at the beginning for us. It was the third day of. Oh, wow. Of uh, 
maybe the second episode or the third episode, something like that. I'd have to really look at the dates of those shows. But um, we, this is a nice tidbit about business. The uh, networks and the studios are not covered for natural disasters, insurance-wise. Okay. So if you shut down your show, the show eats it, pretty much. You know, the money is uh, lost. Right. So they decided, let's not shut down the show. We're going to still shoot the show on Friday. This was two days after 9-11. So 9-11 happened on a Tuesday, so yeah, okay. Right. So I don't know if we showed up. I don't remember what day we shot or whatever, what we did. But anyway, so the day that it happened, we still had a rehearsal. We, we went along as if, you know, Belushi kept walking around saying, if, if we cancel, they win, you know. Right. Everybody was saying that. So then um, that we were shooting a scene in a bathtub and Courtney Thorne Smith fell and broke her wrist. Ooh. So we were able to cancel the show because we were covered. Oh, well, that was convenient, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it worked yeah, out yeah. well. So, so one of the things I think is interesting, and right now, uh, according to Jim, is airing on Laugh TV. Uh -huh. And it is airing every weeknight, and it must be doing very well because they're playing multiple episodes back to back. But the one thing I think is very interesting, and I'm, I'm comparing it to today's TV, is that you did 22 to almost 30 episodes a season mm -hmm. compared to what they do now. I know. Do you think they're getting off easy in today's TV world? Well, first of all, I wouldn't be surprised if it, well, wait a minute. When did that start happening? Was it during when COVID or was it before that? It was before COVID because so they were doing these. The cable shows, right? Right. They were doing mid-season replacements and all that stuff. It was like they had two seasons. But if you look at some of these cable shows, they do half the show, or not, I don't know if it's cable, but anyway, HBO, like with succession, right. eight episodes and then another eight episodes later. In the right. Season. I think that this is, you can't judge anything by these last two, three years because of, right. of COVID. But uh, yeah, otherwise, yeah. And I, I don't know, but I mean, look at, if you look at something like Modern Family, didn't they still shoot 25, 26 episodes? Uh, yeah, about that. It's the networks that can, that pay for that. And um, they pay more. Do you and, think, do you think, um, especially nowadays, because we have these streaming services like Netflix who drop, well, actually they're not right now, but they were dropping the whole season at one time and people would sit and watch 12 episodes or whatever it may be in one sitting, which I think ruins the. Us, so yeah, they've yeah. trained us to hurt our backs. That's for sure. <laughs> As someone told me, and I didn't realize, I never thought of it, but now that when what you did and what we did waiting for a weekly program was appointment TV. We had an appointment every week at the same yeah. time to watch it. Now you can just go through it. So do you see the streaming services, services affecting what we're going to see in the near future? Because, I mean, you've worked in it. You were hands-on for so many years. When you say what we're going to see, do you mean what we're going to see on the networks? Because I only worked on network TV. Well, do you see the network's programming changing because of how popular streaming has become? Or do you still think there will be a network for entertainment? I think they'll, I think there, there'll still be network. I don't know. You know, that's a good, I don't know. I can't predict <laughs> that. I think that NBC, ABC, you know, CBS, right. those, those networks will um, will probably continue because I think it takes them a long time to change. Okay. And they have their executives and everything. Nobody wants to give up their jobs. You know, I, I think if it's going to change, it's going to take quite a while. Unless these new, you know, I'm seeing that all these firings of the heads of a lot of companies, uh, that could change things again in a big way, I guess, even with network TV. So I'm noticing behind you, you have quite a few guitar cases. Yes, I do. <laughs> wow. And because of your music um, and that, are you still writing TV or are you just focusing on your music? Just, uh, you know, I wouldn't even, I'm doing right now, I'm doing some children's records just because I have a grandson who's four years old. So I started doing children's records a couple of years ago and I've got three uh, CDs out 
and I'm just finishing up my fourth one for kids. But I also have my adult CDs out. Right, which I think is, that's interesting. So you're, you're seeing a career change because of family is what you're doing. Uh, not a career change. I'm still doing adult okay. you know, music. Right, okay. But, uh, but I'm not writing as many of those songs as I am with children right now. So I don't know, maybe it is a career change. So do you think, I mean, before you started doing children's music, did you think that the music was not was too infantile or did you feel you that the children? Yeah. No, I didn't see any problem with a lot of it. I mean, there's a lot of great music for kids. Um, I tell you one thing I used to sort of think, Oh, Rafi. Well, I'm not interested in Rafi, you know? right. but I've gained quite a, you know, respect for what Rafi uh, did because to be able to get on stage in an auditorium with three and four year olds oh. in the audience, and do a one or two hour show. Now the parents are sitting next to the children. That makes a big difference. Right. Still, he's holding their interest because he, they know the songs. And that's quite a thing to do. I mean, I, I, I can do it for 20 minutes if they know my music, but I can't do an hour with that age. I mean, unless I do a bunch of finger play things and get right. to get up and run around. but. You know, just singing my songs and playing, which is what Rafi did. Or maybe it's just a different world now. I don't know. Um, I think I think I think part of it is a different world because I don't think kids have the attention span to be able to sit there that long anymore. I don't uh, especially after what we've dealt with for the last couple of years, because the only entertainment they had was in front of a TV screen that changed constantly. Yeah. Good point. So. So how long have you been writing music? Have you always written music? Have you? Well, I've been playing the guitar since I was 14. Okay. And I did write some songs in high school and I started writing in the seventies. But then when I started writing television, which was uh, 1989, 1990, uh, that was a long period of time there where uh, writing for television where I didn't write songs until I quit TV. I okay. wrote some songs that were done in the shows, in the TV shows, because the advantage is, you know, you're already in the room, you know what the song they need is, you have your guitar at work, you play That's it, neat. you play it for the music supervisor, and there it is. It's done. So yeah, I did, I was very fortunate to be in that situation. Uh, when I left in 2002, um, when I left TV, I really started writing. Okay. Yeah, you know, and I understood how to write a song way better than I ever had because you know when you're writing half-hour television, you're writing 22 minutes. You're writing a beginning and a middle and an end in 22 minutes, and a song is maybe three minutes. Right. Three minutes. So I, but I had learned really how to do the beginning, the middle, and an end. You know, and to condense it. So there's a song that you recently did um, that was an international songwriting competition for 2001 under comedy and novelty. Uh -huh. Fire up the weed. Yes. Which. <laughs> it's a funny song, but it's really sad. <laughs> but when I saw that, the first person that jumped in my mind when I saw it going, did she write that for Jim Belushi? Because now he has his own cannabis farm. Yeah, um, yeah I should send that song to him. I don't think I've ever heard that song. So what was the inspiration behind that song? Well, uh, okay, I'll tell you the absolute truth. We're, all, we're adults here. I was in a songwriting group uh, run by a man named Marty Martin, who is the late Marty Martin who gave, used to give us prompts all the time. You know, he'd say, okay. write a song about this. So he said, write a song about what the ingredients in a good relationship. And I was really stopped by that because I was in a relationship. And I remember when I was sat down to start working on that, I was looked over at the couch at my boyfriend who was watching a baseball game on TV. Uh -huh. And I thought, I am just going to write about exactly what this relationship is. <laughs> okay. Exactly what it is. Just there's nothing untrue about that song. It's all true. And um, that's what I did. And it, it wasn't, you know, 
I mean, it starts out, uh, I'm embarrassed to say this relationship works because we never talk. Okay. We rarely talked. Uh-huh. So, you know. <laughs> so, okay. So how long ago was this song written then? It was written in, uh, let's see, must have been around 2010. So it's taken, what, nine years, or uh, 11 well, years? It's on my CD called uh, I Just See You, which I recorded. Let me just see what the date is on that. I recorded this in 2012. Okay. So it looks like this. Yes. Kind of moody. Uh, So I recorded it in 2012, and it actually has won a number of contests. Okay. This is a new, I sent it into this particular contest. I never had sent it into them. Okay. So, you know, it's it's right now it's it's uh it's like a uh contender. You know, it's it's, it's gotten some notoriety, but it's, you know. So the the way the music industry is today compared to what what it was in the early days when you were playing and you you played the clubs and everything else. If you did not have some type of an established career, do you think you would have been able to do what you're doing now? Um, and making CDs. Um, what was the beginning of the question? If I didn't have, uh... I mean, the experience you had before you went into TV, playing the clubs and everything like that, yeah. and the experience and the foundation you have in the music industry compared to what's going on today, do you think you would have stuck with it as long as you did and, oh, and, uh... and record? Because I just think now it's just so segmented that there's really no consistency for a lot of people. Yeah, I don't know what I would have done. Uh, maybe I was lucky that I got out of it. But in the in the mid '80s, or that's before that, but I don't remember the dates exactly. But I did what a lot of people do in this in the music business, um, who have songs, who have a catalog of songs, catalog. You know, I signed with a, I made a very bad publishing deal and a very okay. bad recording deal, and. Uh, I didn't know at the time, but it was a tax write-off for that company. Oh. And they had done that to a number of, of writers and uh, singers and producers and stuff like that. And I was so badly burned that I, instead of realizing, oh, well, at least I got the chance. Somebody thought I was good enough to at least be a tax write-off. But, right. you know, they, they, they thought it, was, it would look legitimate because the songs were good, you know. Um, I, I should have thought, you know, the only way to quit is to, I mean, the only way to fail is to quit, mm-hmm. but I didn't understand that. I was so burned that I stopped pursuing it. Okay. If you know what I mean. Yeah. I did send some songs out for other people to record. I got a, a Mel Tillis and Nancy Sinatra did a duet on one of my songs. And oh, really? Like, okay. Yeah, you can look that up too. Um, and uh, that was probably the most successful thing I had happen in terms of somebody else doing my songs. And uh, it was the song was called If I Failed. The song is now called I Would Fly. But at that time, in fact, they may have renamed it I Would Fly. I don't remember how that, you know, I don't remember. But uh, it, it was... I was, a, you know, I was a new songwriter. I had a good-sized catalog of what I thought were good songs. Right. And I didn't, it didn't occur to me that someone would take advantage of not only me, but the singer who sang on the CD, on the, on the album, a girl named Marty Gwynn, who was wonderful. And we all together, it was a big tax write-off. I'll be darned. Shocking. So, so I, I, I just got hurt. So the CDs you've been doing since 2000, are you producing them yourself? Yeah. Are you st- okay. And did that open a lot of eyes up on how things are done in the industry? Uh, you mean when you say a lot of eyes, you mean other people? I was just following what I saw other people doing. Okay, that's what I mean. Did, were you following yeah. other people? No, I don't feel I was a pioneer in anything. What, but... <laughs> Was it different than you thought it would be? Let's ask it that way. Um, no, I, you know, I, I, I'll tell you what's different that I didn't foresee was CDs 
not being the thing to do anymore, that, that streaming would be so prevalent, so much the way things are done, that a physical product <coughs> wouldn't mean anything anymore. And now what do you do? And it's like, you know, it's fun to do liner notes and get to do a picture on the cover. And, and I'd, I'd like to hold on to something. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of CDs that I don't even listen to. Yeah. You know, I, can, I, can, I have Alexa. I can just ask for it. Well, I, I still listen to vinyl and I get as much of stuff as I can on vinyl because mm -hmm. I'm a product of that generation. I actually bought a new turntable the beginning of this week because the one I had for 30 years died. So it was like uh, losing a best friend when that thing went oh, out. Yeah, I have a turntable and, and, and vinyl but as well. The, but again, with the popularity of vinyl, have you ever thought about releasing some of your stuff on that? Or is it, it cost prohibitive? I, I don't know how, I don't know. I haven't looked into it, but yeah, I've thought about it. So with the whole idea of COVID that has happened, and I mean, we've been in this shutdown situation. I mean, we're finally coming out of it now, but for the most part, been in a shutdown situation. Were you performing live concerts before then? Yeah. Uh, are you looking at doing them again here in the future, or are you still a little bit resistant? I am uh, entertaining it somewhat. I, I've uh, right before COVID, or right when COVID, when the shutdown started happening, I had to cancel a lot of gigs. Okay. And uh, some of them almost at the last minute, which doesn't feel good. Right. Mad too, you know, even though they know why. And um, I've been doing so many Zoom things, open mics and mm -hmm. occasionally something more than that, like a show. Yeah. And uh, I like this. I like not having to drive an hour and a half at, at rush hour because that's right. what it means to get somewhere and uh, you know to get to a sound check at 6.30 for a 7.30 or 8 o'clock show. Right. Uh, and and it takes me an hour away, takes me two hours. And, you know, I've gotten older and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying this. I will do gigs, but I don't think I'll go as far out as I have been going. I liked doing the caves, for instance. That's not far for me. Okay. And that's, you know, that's about the biggest shows I do at McCabe's. You, um, you don't miss the live interaction with an audience or I is... I do miss that. I do miss okay. that. And I found, I did one sort of in the middle of like 2021, somewhere in there, there was some lifting of, you know, I still wore a mask when I, to get there and everything, or right. being around people, but I, I went on stage and I found it was so much easier after doing these Zoom things, because this is harder than that for me. Why do you, why do you say that? Um, You know, holding on to an, uh, the attention of people who are at their house. Yeah. You know, even you, we're talking and you're doing, you know, you're doing stuff and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at my phone <laughs> over here and, you know, I, my daughter just walked in. I have a lot of distractions here. So That's it's true. very hard. I have to concentrate on the, on the uh, camera mm -hmm. when I'm playing to 20 people that are, that are doing all sorts of different, it's like two or three people actually riveted. You know, paying attention. God knows where they're sitting because I don't right. know why they're riveted because there's too many distractions. Uh, so holding a live audience who's come there to see you and paid is very easy compared to this. Okay, and I under and I understand that I really do because uh, I like you're right. I like about this too. Um, um, some of these things I get re I get recordings for one thing. Right. You know. It's free publicity. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. and with every every um, online program that you do, do you see an increase in CD sales? Um, no. Oh. <laughs> no, but, but I may, you know, that doesn't mean they don't listen more. To right. Streaming. You know, I'm on Spotify and stuff. I just, you know, there's there's no way you have to be a big star to make money. You know, and I've been hearing that more and more from people. Yeah, and um, even if you're touring, I mean, if you're touring and you're selling CDs, if, if that still happens with selling, you know, actual CDs, uh, you can make a lot of money that way. Right. But it's still not enough. You know, I, I mean, I, I so. So when we started talking about your music, you said you started doing children's music because of your 
grandson, correct? Four years mm -hmm. old. Yeah, I did it. I started before that, but I because I sort of saw that that might be coming. So with you doing that and he listens to it, does he know it's you? He does now. He's four. Okay. He, he knows it's me. And I'll tell you what's very gratifying is every once in a while I'll hear him, he'll be playing and he'll be singing something and I'll recognize it as one of my songs. And I'll think, you know, because you don't always know what's going in there. Right, exactly. You know, and uh, I'll be, I'll think, okay, then there's there's kids around that have those CDs that are, you know, that have heard them. And, and I, it just feels good when somebody else is singing one of your songs, you know. That 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 has to be very gratifying, especially <laughs> your grand, <laughs> especially a four-year-old grandson. Um that can make that connection to his yeah, grandmother. That has to be. The, when I first started putting these out, people, the, there was a bigger fan base at the beginning, at least one that I was aware of. Right. Um, I don't know. If, there might be a bigger fan base now, but I'm not aware of it. <clears throat> uh, they would send me videos or uh, audio recordings of their kids singing, you know, singing one of my songs. And that's just so much fun to see. So I, musicians I've had on the program before, I've always asked this question. I get a mixed response because they say that every song they've written or sung is a child to them and they can't pick a favorite. Do you have a favorite of one of your songs that you perform regularly? Mm, no. <laughs> well, I, might have said, I might have said fire up the weed at a certain point. Okay. It's, 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 it's you know, it gets such a wonderful reaction. I, I always enjoy that. And people come up to me and say, you're singing about me and my wife, you know, I think, <laughs> you even know what you're saying, <laughs> you know, but uh, it, it's not my favorite song. I, I you know, I, um, I think it's usually the newest one. Okay. You know, I so, have a new one called something like a man that I really, really love. Okay. Um, when you write your music, is it, do you have to relate to it when you write it? Is it something that's happening in your life? Where do the ideas come from? Um, well, that's probably why I'm not writing as many songs now as I used to. Uh, that guy that I was going with that I wrote Fire Up the Weed about, I wrote a lot of songs about him. A lot. I mean, 50, 100, I don't know. You know, I okay. And I, half of the songs I've recorded are about him. He passed away a couple of years ago. Uh, we weren't together at the time, but um, when, when uh, we stopped dating I or not dating but going together uh I kind of wrote less and less okay and I became somebody who could write stuff that wasn't about my own life I mean I write about other people too right uh, but I don't know it was more fun writing when he was my muse because he was so it was so he was so horrible <laughs> He was adorable, but he was like a horrible. horrible. Um, so the children's music you're writing now, what's the inspiration for that? Is it your grandson? Yeah, I'd say it's more him than anything else, yeah. Okay. That's 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 great. Do you have anything new coming out here in the near future? Um, no, I'll just probably in, within this year, I'll release my new kid CD. And I have everything ready to do a adult CD, a CD for grown-ups, I should say. Uh, but... Um, not sure where I'm going to, if I'm going to record them with the same producer that does my kids' CDs. Or okay. There's a couple of options. I mean, he's so terrific, but I'm just not sure it's the right fit for that. But anyway. Well, Tracy, before I let you go, is there anything you want to tell my audience? Because this has been such a pleasure and a joy to be able to talk to you today. Um. Just thanks if you're still there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they are. Trust me. Uh, they're still for, there. We're sticking with this this long. And, uh, you know, watch, uh, go watch my PBS, you know. The early days. Yeah, write Tracy Newman uh, on YouTube. Write Tracy Newman banjo. And you'll you'll find something that's pretty fun from 1965. <laughs> so do you play, do you still play the banjo? No, in fact, when I, I did you see that video? Yes. Well, I'm playing Cripple Creek. It's the only song I know how to play on the band. Oh, really? Yeah, because I don't know if you remember uh, the Andy Griffith show. Yes. 
Okay, so the Dillards, those were the three guys, that, the musicians. I don't know what their names were on the show. Right. Bill Dillard taught me how to play Cripple Creek because I was auditioning for the Andy Griffith show when I was a teenager. And I learned to really play that song really well. I mean, as well as I'm doing it on <laughs> the mistakes that I'm making and stuff. But anyway, um, that, uh, that is what I play on the banjo. But I, I know how I know how to play the banjo, but I don't. It's very heavy. So okay, was uh, it a five string or a six string? Five string. Five string. Okay. Yeah. I have I have a neighbor that builds them and can play a six string, which is amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. A six string is that's a whole other thing. Yeah, that's it's it's like you don't have enough fingers. I don't know how you do it, but still. Anyway, Tracy, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I will have. Uh, actually, I will do it. Now, I will put your uh, domain on the screen so people can reach you and also put in the description so people can find out how they can get in touch with you and get your music and find out a little bit more of who you are. Because like I said, you've pretty much done everything in the entertainment world and uh, you're still here to talk about it, which is fantastic. I'm still here. Uh, (laughs) And I'm sure you have more stories that we didn't even touch on today. So again, thank you very much. Thank you. A big thank you goes out to Tracy Newman for joining me today. What a pleasure that was. Really enjoyed it. Learned about the growlings, learned about According to Jim, learned about everything she did from music, TV, and her even children's program in 1965. So Tracy, thank you very much for joining me. And thank you for watching and listening to us here on The Bill Alexander Show. Guys, you have a great one. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to thebillalexandershow.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.